Hey guys, welcome to episode 124 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope all is well with you, and we're really excited to be here with you all again. Spring has finally begun, so we hope the weather is getting nicer where you are and you're shaking off those winter blues that seriously tend to annihilate me come February, so... I love when the spring weather starts coming on. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but like I feel like I have been dealing with allergies for way longer than I should be. I you do complain about your allergies every single day. <laughs> and every single day I tell you take allergy medicine. I know. Well, I'm a typical guy. What do you expect? And he refuses to take it. I do. But we'll continue to complain about the symptoms. I will. <laughs> Hey, listen, if I wasn't a guy, I wouldn't, I, I, you know, guys do this. We're, we're not always that bright. What can I say? Yeah. So that's my life in the winter time. So maybe that is why I'm so excited for spring. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. So I just want to take the time here at the beginning of the podcast and kind of just get it out of the way to do all of our normal housekeeping stuff. We would really appreciate it if you would be kind enough to spread the word about the podcast, because that's really the best way for us to get out there. And if you get a chance and you want to, you can rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. That helps us tremendously because getting on the charts can be quite difficult. And honestly, we've only managed to get on the charts very, very low on the charts, but twice only in the five years we've been doing the podcast. It's true. So it is pretty hard. And if you want more of us during the month, be sure to check out our Patreon page where you get two bonus episodes a month. And you can get that at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. We also want all of our Patreon subscribers to know that we're sending out our most recent batch of stickers for the $5 and up supporters. And for just being amazing human beings, we have spring-inspired true crime stickers for our $10 and up supporters. So if you are on Patreon and you donate $10 or more, be sure to add your address if you haven't already done so because we're sending an extra sticker to you guys. Okay, that was all of my announcements. I got them in as quickly as possible. So John, are you ready for some murder? Been ready. (laughs) Today our case brings us to America's heartland in 1991. Polk County, Wisconsin is located at the northwest border between its state and Minnesota. In the early 90s, the county had a population of around 34,000, which was average for the state. The towns that we will be discussing today, Cushing and St. Croix Falls, were all a little bit more remote than the other towns in the county. And as you can imagine, in an age before cell phones and the internet, remote truly meant remote. So when a family of five goes completely missing without a trace, the Polk County Sheriff's Department has to rush to solve the case. Their need to find the family intensifies as time goes on, and hope dwindles that they will be found alive. The constant media coverage of the mystery only flames the fires that the Sheriff's Department was being held to. And when some graffiti turned up on the building of a local Masonic lodge, the whole town went mad. Not only was someone among them a killer, but they may be part of a satanic cult. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil. 
in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Our story today starts as most true crime stories do, with a call placed to 911. Alice Anderson had been concerned about the whereabouts of her ex-husband. The day before, her 15-year-old son, Bruce, had been staying at his father's trailer. Alice had been divorced from her ex-husband, Rick Brenizer, for just over a decade. But the two were amicable with each other as they shared custody of their son. The custody agreement was easily executed because of the fact that he lived in Cushing and she lived just outside of St. Croix Falls. So that meant that whether he was staying at his father's house or her house, that he was still within the same school district. So no matter where he was staying, it made things really easy with school. Alice had received a phone call from her son the day before, on April 23rd, 1991. He told her the day before, on April 22nd, his father, Rick Brenizer, his girlfriend, Ruth Berenson, and her two daughters, so Bruce's stepsisters, and their daughter, so Bruce's half-sister, had gone on a family trip to a store that his father needed to go to in Minnesota. That night, they had not returned. Bruce thought that they may have just had car trouble, so he went to school the next day, which was April 23rd. However, when he got back to the trailer at around 3 p.m., he realized that his family still had not returned home. So that was when he started to get worried. So he placed a phone call to his mother and asked her what he should do. She told him that she didn't want him staying at the trailer alone so that she was going to go there and pick him up. After Alice retrieved her son, she tried all that day and night to get a hold of her ex-husband or his girlfriend by continuously calling the trailer, hoping that they would just show back up. But she couldn't get in contact with anyone. The next day, the same day that she called the sheriff's department, she tried to call all morning and afternoon, but she wasn't getting any answer. So that was when she decided that she needed to call authorities and report them missing because Bruce had been very adamant with his mother that his father, Rick, his girlfriend, and the three girls were just going to a store and they were supposed to be back that night. So now they've been missing for over 48 hours. Yeah, and it is a little odd because it's not like the ex-wife and the ex-husband have any bad blood. Well, thank God they don't. She's the only one calling right. them missing. Well, sure. But I'm just saying, like, you know what I mean? Like, you would make sure that your son would call his, his mother when they got back or, you know, that's your job is to make sure that your your son, while he's at, in your custody, to call his mother. You know, like, you know, maybe before bed or something like that. Right. So to not get that is weird when they've had good standings with one another. Right. And that's why when Alice called the sheriff's department, she said she feared that something sinister might have happened because communication was really always key between her and Rick, and it was always very amicable, and he would have never just left Bruce alone for that amount of time because he was supposed to—Bruce was still supposed to have been at the trailer this whole time, and now he's staying with his mother, so something went wrong here, and she knew it. Because she couldn't get in contact with any of them. And she was even calling his family members and nobody had heard from him. Now, when you think about it, if they're going to a store, it shouldn't take that long. But where I think the way you described it in the beginning that this is a town that's 
where things m- might be far away, right? Yeah, well, this town is remote, but they were also going to the specific supply store, which was in Minnesota, so it is a, a good distance away, but they should not have been gone for more than a day. Sure. Not even more than a few hours. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, in our minds, we have to keep that in mind, that it is 1991 and that it is let's just say for argument's sake an hour or let's say it's an hour and a half away let's say a lot can happen in an hour and a half could get into an accident things could happen so and there's no cell phones exactly so that's really what they were fearing the most at this moment was like maybe there was an accident and they were in a hospital but they didn't know what hospital they'd be in because there there was a lot of hospitals between where they lived and where this store was in minnesota So because Alice Anderson was at a bit of a loss here and kind of really, I mean, she's calling the police because she's got to call the police because she fears something's wrong, but she feels a little strange, I guess, calling all the hospitals in the area and she's just going to report this to police because she doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, I don't think that's, you know, I think anybody would feel weird doing that. Yeah. Because you don't want to be known as like... Oh, they, you didn't hear from me for a little bit and you freaked out, mom. Like the crazy ex-wife. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the Polk County Sheriff was on their way to file a missing persons report and check out the residents of the reportedly missing family. But there were not any immediate concerns from the Sheriff's Department. Polk County was known for its Jack Pine Forests and the St. Croix National Scenic Riverway, not crime. In fact, they had one of the lowest crime rates in the state and the lowest murder rate um, in the whole entire state. I mean, that's a good thing to have, right? I yes, think a lot of other people in a lot of other areas in the United States would love that. <laughs> that's a good claim to fame. Yeah. So they thought that this missing person's case was going to end as most of them did, with a simple misunderstanding. But they couldn't have been more wrong. Upon further investigation, they found the story that Bruce had told to his mother to be true. Rick and Ruth had not taken any of their three girls' belongings with them on their journey. It seemed that the only thing that they brought with them was their wallet and purse, which indicated that they didn't expect to be gone for more than a few hours. The car that Bruce said they left in, the family's 1980 Oldsmobile station wagon, was gone. And after talking to friends and family of both Rick and Ruth, they learned that no one else had heard from them either. It appeared that Rick, Ruth, and her two daughters, Heidi and Mindy, as well as the daughter they shared together, Crystal, were missing, and the girls all ranged in ages from 5 to 10. So they're young. And this was very odd, but it still didn't mean there was foul play. So they were still kind of treating this a little lax at the moment. The first thing the Polk County investigators wanted to do was determine whether or not returning was intentional or not. Like, maybe did they plan to go away for a long time and maybe they were just saying that to Bruce? So that's what they were trying to determine. The detectives for the sheriff's department first questioned Bruce because he was the last to have seen the family. He said that he had been staying with his father for part of the week, the part of the week that he always did. And on Monday, April 22nd, once he had returned from school, his father and his girlfriend, the mother of his half-sister, told him that they were planning to go to Maynard's. And Maynard's is a builder's supply store where Rick got most of his supplies that he needed for himself for any odd job that he was kind of doing around his trailer or that other people were paying him to do. 
So every once in a while, he did make the trip out there because it was the most affordable place to get builder supply things. Now, the closest Maynards that I could find to the Cushing area was that was open in 1991 because obviously they've opened other locations since then was the one located in Forest Lake, Minnesota, which meant that the trip was supposed to have taken 35 minutes. Okay. So that's not very long at all. No, it's not. But I can imagine that it maybe takes a long time while he's there, which is why he didn't want to leave like the girls with Bruce. So Bruce told detectives that he had gotten into a little bit of an argument with his father because Rick had wanted Bruce to accompany the family on the trip. He told his dad that he didn't want to go because he had a lot of homework to do and it was a school night. He said that he wanted to stay back and just get everything done. I really feel too it's almost like a thing. It's like he's a 15-year-old teenage boy and he probably doesn't want to be stuck in a car with all three of his sisters and go to this. He probably wanted some solitude in the trailer. I can imagine. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it would be I was I was about to say a red flag, but not red flag in the sense where I think he did something. Red flag is I think he's lying because what 15-year-old kid, you know, is going to sit there and do their homework and like get right. everything done. I'm sorry. Like, well, even, me, but, well, maybe you, yeah. but like even the smartest and brightest, you know, the brightest of kids, that's not necessarily something that they want to do. If there's something else they could do while they're there alone, like maybe, maybe video games or, or, or anything, maybe a book or whatever. I don't know. But like, I think he probably doesn't want to have to be with the family and feel like he's part of this blended family. He probably has some reservations maybe about that. I think another thing, too, is that they all live, I mean, you have to think about it, five people live full-time in a trailer, and it was a pretty, it was a, it wasn't a large trailer. So five people live there, and then for half of the week, Bruce also lives there. So as you can imagine, it's, it's probably, people are living on top of each other. So he might want the solitude and the peace for a while. Yeah, I guess either way, he just didn't want to have to go out. Regardless, I think we can all recall like times where it's like cool to be left alone still when you're 15. Sure. And I'm sure. And I also think that the father probably thinks nothing of this because it's not going to be long, you know, 35 minutes each way. It's not a long time. He will be fine in the trailer until I get back. And it's not that bad. What's the perfect excuse that we always give our parents? We lie and say like, oh, I have homework to do. Right, Because no parents going to be like, I'm going to take you away from that. Right. So eventually Rick relented and let his 15-year-old son stay home. Now, Bruce said he was feeling guilty about what had transpired between him and his father before he left because now his dad's missing and the last conversation he had with his father was a fight. So he was feeling a little bad about this, which is totally understandable. Definitely. Bruce then offered up a very interesting piece of information to law enforcement. First, he told the investigators that when he had come home from school on the 23rd, right before he had called his mother to let her know what had been going on, he noticed that, or he thought that someone had been in the trailer. He didn't think anything was missing, but he said that things seemed out of place, like someone had come in and was looking for something. And when they asked what that might be, Bruce said he didn't know. But the men asked the boy the question they always ask during these investigations. Do you know who might want to hurt or didn't like your father or his girlfriend? 
and Bruce told them that maybe he could think of somebody. He said that about a month ago, he had been home alone in the trailer when a man came to the door. The man had been looking for Rick, and when Bruce said that his father wasn't home, the man basically implied that his father owed him a lot of money and that he would definitely be back to get it. He said the whole thing made him a little nervous, and he did mention it to his father, but his father kind of just laughed the whole thing off. And, you know, that kind of created red flags for the investigators. So now it's looking like someone returned to the trailer and was looking for something, and earlier someone had said, your father owes me money. I mean, that's a very detailed story as to, you know, giving someone who might have ill intention for his father and his family. What I think is a little bizarre, and maybe this is on me, is it weird for me to feel like this kid's hiding something, like a 15-year-old boy's hiding something? I mean, as somebody who works with teenagers, I don't think it's weird to think that. <laughs> like, I would hate to, like, already in this podcast feel like he's hiding something. Yeah. But I kind of do. I don't want to say red flag because I, I just don't want to place a blame of any sort on a 15-year-old. But it it just seems like the story's too good. Like he's saying family's missing this might be the reason yeah like this is a great way to deter police from himself and giving a great story that he recalls okay you know what i mean we're like i we've had this happen not a 15 year old but we've had people come up with stories that would deter police from looking more into the the person themselves you know what i mean and lead them astray um the only thing that would be like questionable about that is it's a whole family of five missing i know I'm just trying yeah. to, like, give the option <laughs> that maybe there's something more going on here that meets the eye. So are you full red flagging it or are you bookmarking this? I'm bookmarking it because I might be completely out of my scope with this. Okay. But I just think it's 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 a very good story that someone came by asking for money. Uh, someone came, uh, you know, before that someone was around the trailer. So I think you're saying this is a controversial red flag. Yeah. 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 A yellow flag? I don't know. I guess. What is this? Like, is this soccer now? I don't know. But um, I just, uh, I don't know. Just seems off to me. Something, something about it. is sitting wrong with you. Yeah, like maybe he does know something, but it's, he's not given the real story, story maybe. I don't know. Okay. Well, next the investigators talk to everyone that they can. They question the family's friends, coworkers, acquaintances, and other family members. They wanted to get a sense of who the family was and whether or not they left or something bad could have happened. And while they were questioning all of these people, a physical search of the family had also begun. The Polk County Sheriff's Department put out an APB on the make and model of the car as well as the license plates. A patrol search was being done of the county meaning that patrol cars were driving up and down all roads in the county to see if they could find the vehicle, and the road to and from the store that the family was supposed to go to that day was being searched. So they were really searching for the family, as well as doing that on-the-ground work of questioning everybody who knew them. Okay, that's great police work. Yeah, it seems as soon as they realized this is a pretty serious missing persons case, five people are missing. They knew this was going to be a big deal as well. They really kind of spring into action, which is wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, essentially it's an entire family just, uh, you know, gone out of thin air. Right. So the initial physical search turned up nothing, but the interviews were enlightening. 
But before we get into those interviews, we're going to take a break and talk about our first sponsor of the show. Okay, let's get back to the show. So where we left off, the investigators of Polk County had physically begun their search for the missing family of five, but had found nothing. Luckily, the investigators who were out questioning the family were able to get some answers. In talking to those close with the family, members of the Bernizer and Berenson families found out that the family had fallen on a little bit of a hard time financially. Rick worked very hard to provide for his family. In fact, he worked three separate jobs. I mean, that's a lot. It's. Can you imagine working three part-time jobs? Um, no. You must be so exhausted. Hey, it's so much. So he worked at a turkey producer plant and a fencing company. And then on the side, he did a lot of odd jobs, freelance work, but specifically like with a specialty in fencing. So he kind of put fences up for people on top of what the work he did for a company. Okay. I mean, that's a lot of work. Yeah. And it's a really physical. So that was actually why he had been headed to Maynard's that day, because he was getting supplies for a job that was coming up. So it was really difficult trying to provide for a family of five, occasionally six, when his son from his previous marriage was over. And doing it on three part-time jobs did not leave a lot of wiggle room. Rick, his girlfriend, and the three girls lived in a double-wide trailer. And for half of the time, Bruce lived with them as well. It was very cramped, and in seeing pictures of the trailer that police will take, it was obvious that the trailer was um, not really cared for. And that's like me putting it very, very nicely, both on the inside and out. As you can imagine, six people living within one trailer, things got really messy, and it didn't seem like there was a lot of um, cleaning up that was done. Well, I mean, I look at it this way. I mean, when you have that many children in a, in a very small space, you have the father working three jobs. He's probably exhausted to maintain the outside of the house or even inside. And I'm sure if the wife was working or even if she wasn't, I mean, it's, she's probably trying to take care of those kids. Yeah. So it can get a little hectic, I'm sure. So Yes, I'm sure it can get a little hectic. And there's nothing wrong with a... A lived-in house, especially when you have three children, sometimes four, especially in a trailer. But it did seem, from the pictures, to go a little beyond just lived-in. If okay. you know what I mean? And I want yeah. to just put it really nicely. I don't yeah. want to be, like, judgmental here. No, no, no this is a judgment-free zone. We this don't... This Planet Fitness. Yeah. judgment-free zone. <laughs> but it was um, very, very lived-in, and it did seem like, you know... They weren't living the life I could imagine that Rick, who was, you know, working so hard to provide for, I'm sure he wanted to provide a better life for his family. And it seemed like a goal he was sincerely working hard towards because he is working three jobs. Like, he's not lazy. Yeah. You know? So Rick's father revealed during an interview that he gave that his son took on any freelance job that he could find to earn extra money on the side. And sometimes that meant that he would have to take jobs that were far away. And when that would happen, he would often take his family with him and they would stay in a hotel near where his job was. Okay. So he liked when his family stayed with him because he felt like they were safe. 
you know, he really loved his wife and his daughter and his stepdaughters very much. And he felt like they were safer with him than being alone in the trailer without him for a prolonged amount of time, which really shows that he cares about his family a lot. I mean, yeah, because you got to think, I mean, that is an extra expense to have your family posted up at a hotel. Right. So. So at first the investigators were thinking, oh, maybe that's it. Maybe he got a job out of town. But then it also doesn't make sense at all because he would have told Bruce, I'm going to a job. He wouldn't have said, I'm going to the store. Yeah, and he would, and if that's the case, he would have arranged with his ex-wife, hey, listen, I need you to take back Bruce. I'm sorry for the last minute notice. I'm headed to a job. I'm taking the rest of the family with me. That's you know? actually really great that you bring that up because they also confirmed this with Alice. And Alice did say, yes, that's true. He does bring the family. And usually what will happen is that they work something out where Bruce just stays with her for the time that he's gone. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. So which so because that makes sense, what is what is being portrayed here doesn't. Right. Like you know? they thought at, I mean, it's easy to get excited about something like that. Like, oh, that's an easy solution. That's the answer. But it just didn't pan out the way investigators wanted it to. Yeah, because so many things could have happened. He could have he could have picked Bruce up and drove him home to his mom's house or they could have arranged for her to come to his trailer or, you know, and pick him up there. Like exactly so, like they would have dropped yeah. him off or picked up. Nope. And I do just want to say here that it is truly refreshing to see these adults in a very healthy relationship getting along for the sake of their children, because th- these are truly some seriously blended families that really have transitioned well into um, the new reality of the life that they're living. And it just, it's nice to say. Yeah, I mean, I guess without getting too much into it, it is nice to see. And it's because when you have people that are hardworking like this, they don't have time for uh, quote-unquote BS. The drama of it all. They don't don't have time for this. They're trying to move on. It didn't work. It didn't work for the sake of the children. This is, you know, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Like, that is a very grown-up response to a situation I think it does also help the fact that Rick was in a healthy relationship with Ruth. They have a child. And then Alice also went on to marry a man, Ron Anderson. And because of that, you know, they're both in healthy relationships. So it does make things a little bit easier. Yeah, for sure. So I think the circumstances were also correct here. (laughs) Investigators also learned that Rick liked to buy and sell goods at the local flea market. So they went to talk to the owner of the market to see if he knew anything about Rick and any future plans he might have. And they were in luck. The owner told them that Rick had a table reserved for April 27th, the weekend after his disappearance, but he had never shown up, something that Rick had never done before. So this was interesting. Because Rick reserved a table at the flea market and had to spend money to do so, it meant that Rick had never planned to leave the area. So they know that something happened. It was not his choice or it had been an emergency or something sinister happened to this family. Yeah, because you also have to think, too, he's losing money by not showing up because he rented that table. And that's not something he would do. He would not do that. And number two, he wouldn't lose out on an opportunity to sell stuff to make money. Correct. So very uncharacteristic. And the fact that they found out that Rick and Ruth had been struggling financially was of great importance to the investigators because it jived with something that Bruce had told them about the man coming to the house and stating that his father owned 
him money. So had Rick borrowed money or gotten himself involved in something illegal so he could get more money for his family? I mean, it was definitely an avenue that they needed to go down because it seemed like, although, you know, we we said like what Bruce said, oh, it's a little too convenient, but there does seem to be factors in their life that are corroborating that he might have borrowed money from somebody. So the investigators totally want to establish a more clear timeline and learn more about Rick and what he might have done. So they knew that the family had a set destination, which lucky for them could provide documentation regarding whether or not the family had been there. So the investigators went to the store that the family was supposed to have visited and they asked if they could check their records to see if any purchases were made on April 22nd by Rick Brenizer. As the store was very large and made hundreds of transactions a day, they told the sheriff's department that they would have to get back to them. It took the Maynard store five days to respond to the detectives. So on May 3rd, 1991, they called and said that they were not able to trace any purchases made that day using credit cards or checks from Rick Brenizer. However, this also doesn't account for any purchases that were made in cash. And of course, it's 1991, so we don't have CCTV footage. So much like everything they were receiving in this entire investigation, this piece of information seemed to help, but also not be helpful at all. I, I hate when all these dead ends like come into play because you're really left with nothing. I do want to point out something. I You might kind of shoot this down, but just hear me out here. If you're a person that is in need of money and you're working three jobs plus selling things at the local market or whatever, you're trying to make ends meet, right? You're already in a bad financial way. There's a part of me that thinks that you wouldn't want to put you and your family in, in, in hot water when you're already there, really, by t- like taking a loan from somebody and owe them money when you probably have other bills, and that's why you're working three jobs plus selling things at the store at the markets. So wouldn't you just try to take the money that you're making from all your jobs, the markets, to try to make ends meet? Because wouldn't it be even worse to now have someone else that you have to pay back as well? Well, John, you're thinking logically here. And maybe there's something that we might not know about that's going on in Rick's life that may have prompted him to have to borrow money. Well, uh, yeah, well, I was going to say with that being said, the flip side to that could be that. Right. You know what I mean? So I'm just throwing it out there, though. Logically, that's what if, you know, you're in in a situation like that, that's kind of where you're at. Unless, like you said, something else comes up that's major that you just can't cover. Yeah, I think you're you're totally on the right track. And I think that if he's somebody who is working hard and thinking logically and trying to do the best for his family, which all evidence points to he has done, then that makes sense what you're saying. But I feel like if somebody is seeking a loan from a private individual who might be a little bit dangerous, there might be something extra going on that we don't know about. So that's what the police were trying to determine. From an outside perspective, Rick Bernizer looks like a picture-perfect father who's working really hard for his children, but if he did owe an individual money, what do we not know about his life? 
Yeah. And that might not be something he shared with his friends and family. It might be a private thing that nobody truly knows about. Yeah, I mean, that's a very big possibility. And that's hard for investigators to try and find out, especially in 1991 when there's no such thing as cell phone records, text messages, you know. Yeah. And sorry, audience. Sorry, guys. If I <laughs> Sorry, I kind of went in a circle there. No, I apologize. it's good. <laughs> You're thinking it through. Trying to. So by May 3rd, the physical search for the family intensified as the media had finally caught wind of the story. And they ran with this one. The mysterious disappearance of an entire family. Where could they have gone? What happened to them? The story being in the news prompted many people to join in on the search parties that were being established. The search that was had for this family was intense. The sheriff's department and the volunteers were searching every hiking location, trail, road, and wooded area in the county. On top of that, there was a ground search and an aerial search being conducted. And there was still an APB out on the car. And the route that the family would have had to take from their house to the store was being searched over and over again. So for about a week longer, that was how the investigation continued to go. Just nothing. No matter how hard they searched, no new piece of information was being found. But that changed on May 11th, when a fisher found a burnt vehicle in the woods. He knew that the police were looking for a station wagon. And that's what the car looked like it had been. The investigators traveled to the location and were surprised to find themselves only three miles from the Bernizer residence. The car, that was most definitely a station wagon at one time, was completely burnt, and all that seemed to be left was the vehicle's frame. The area it sat in was heavily wooded and would have been difficult to get to. The license plates from the car had been removed, so they were unable to easily identify the vehicle because they couldn't even get the VIN number from it. But it did match the description of Rick and Ruth's car. In the back seat of the vehicle, and by that I mean like the trunk area of the station wagon, there was a shovel. And it seemed like there were scrape marks within the bed of the car. Like somebody had kind of shoveled something out once the fire had stopped and the car was burned. Which made sense because the shovel itself wasn't burned but was placed within the car. So that's kind of creepy. What that means is that this vehicle, somebody burned this vehicle and then returned to the scene once it had been, you know, completely burnt out. How, let me ask you a question. How, how far away was this car found from their residence? Three miles. It's not a lot. No, you think it would have been found in the search or the fire would have been. So now at this point, it's, it's just the car. There's no bodies in the car. Well, I'm going to keep oh, sorry, giving sorry. you information. No, it's okay. okay. I know you're excited. I am. I love this kind of stuff. So this area was very secluded. And they were lucky that the fishermen had even gone there because it didn't seem like anyone would go looking in this in this area. Especially because you have to think, I know we're saying, oh, it's only three miles away from the trailer. But they thought they were headed to a store. So they were searching the, lo- the way the- their journey would have taken them to the store. You know what I'm saying? Okay. All right. So it was difficult to try and analyze what was in or had happened to the car because it had been so badly burned, but they had to try. 
The first thing investigators and crime scene techs did was picture and videotape the entire scene. As they slowly worked their way around the car, they discovered that although there wasn't much of the vehicle left, there was a lot of evidence to work with. They found that there was a blood stain on the back bumper of the car and that there was a very clear shoe print on the rear driver's side door of the car. There was also a gas can within the car, which showed them, as they expected, that this had been arson. In addition to that, and most disturbingly, there appeared to be what looked like bone fragments in the back cargo area of the car where the shovel was found. That's creepy. Very creepy. To the detective, the bones looked like they belonged to humans. So the investigator called the University of Wisconsin and asked if they could send a forensic anthropologist to look at the scene. They literally called Bones. That's cool, though. Like the sh- I hope you guys have watched the show Bones. <laughs> if you have not, you need to do so right now. But that's exactly what I thought. They yeah. called Tempe in to, to come check out the scene. That is pretty cool. So the experts from the university collected and analyzed the fragments that were in the car. Visually, they were able to tell the investigators that they were human bone fragments, and they had found the remains of two adults and at least two juveniles. Further DNA testing and forensics would need to be done to confirm it, but it was pretty obvious at this point that the family had been found. But when it came to truly identifying the bones... They wouldn't be able to do so with the bone fragments that had been found because they had been so badly charred. Because the scientists had found some teeth within the burnt car, they felt the best way to identify the bodies would be to do so through dental records. So the next thing the forensic anthropologists do is they're really sifting through the ashes of the car to find as many teeth fragments as they could well that kind of tells me a couple of things the first thing is that that fire must have been like extremely hot right because for that for there to be charred teeth that's pretty it's hot charred bones the teeth seem to be intact but they were in pieces okay and i think it was able to burn so hot because the fire had burned so much that it eventually burned itself out, but nothing stopped it. And the heat within the car, because you're in a vehicle, is because there's no exposure, it's going to heat up within the car a lot. And that's where the yeah. bodies were found. Now, oh, oh the, so the bodies were found in the vehicle. Correct. Like in the back cargo. You know how a station wagon, like sometimes the old station wagons were set up where there were seats in the way back that faced backwards? Like, yes, I know you're talking So you'd about. be awkwardly yeah. driving and kids are just staring at you from the car in front of you. That's okay. where their bodies were all, all were in that area. Now, was the car like crashed? Did it crash or was it just put there and then... It was not crashed. Okay. So what that tells me is that if I had to take a guess here, whoever did this had to have killed them and then put the car on fire. I think that's a good assumption. Like, I think that that would make sense because you can't, like, they're not going to be alive because they would just drive off or whatever. So something has to happen for them to be, you know, kept put. 
Right, because all five of their remains were found in the cargo area and there were no bone fragments found anywhere by the driver's side, the passenger side, or even the back seat. So obviously that leads investigators to believe that the family had been murdered, driven to that location, and then the car was set on fire. So that all of them were found in the back area. Correct. This is really interesting, actually. But it also meant that someone returned to the scene. To set it on fire. No, because the Oh, the shovel. shovel. The shovel. That's right. Yes. So that's really creepy. Wow. So the anthropologists were able to collect 97 different dental fragments, which they then sent to be identified. And Rick Brenizer and Ruth Berenson had been identified through the dental records. However, the other fragments were not able to be identified. Remember, I mean, they're children, so they hadn't had a lot of dental work yet. However, they were able to determine that the teeth fragments that had been found did belong to three separate children. One child that was had an age range of five to six years old, which the youngest child, Crystal, did. And then the other two children were ranged in age from seven to eight and ten to eleven, which Heidi and Mindy, that was their ages as well. So it was them. And they were all there. Rick's tooth fragment, one of them, was specifically analyzed because lead was found in mixed in with the fragment. So this implied to investigators that Rick had been shot in the head. And while they were searching the vehicle for all other fragments and evidence, they noted, like I said to you, that all of the bone fragments were found in the cargo area of the car. So this suggested that the family was murdered, put in the cargo area, driven to this place. Then the car was set ablaze because no other fragments were found anywhere else within the car. Now, this, of course, was shocking for the community. Everyone had been following the news surrounding the story of the entire missing family. And to find out that they had been found burned basically in their backyard in the back of a car beyond any form of recognition, was truly disturbing. Who could have wanted this family dead so badly that they would kill three children, the youngest of which was five years old? In the wake of this tragedy, the community rallied around Bruce Bernizer, who, as they imagined, was feeling a bit of survivor's guilt. Social workers were called by the sheriff's department to assist Alice Anderson and her son Bruce, and to give him any counseling that she felt he needed. But Alice informed them that she didn't think her son needed any counseling and that he was coping well. So she kind of like turned down the work the social workers said they wanted to, you know, give to him. So the investigators did feel heartbroken for Bruce, but they also felt that he was the key to solving this case. It might be something innocuous that he didn't realize could help them. So they they really wanted to kind of pull everything out of Bruce and they kept asking him to retell the story and you know what happened that day and what happened the weeks before and the months before you know what did he know about his father his father's girlfriend and their life Bruce was always brought down to the station by his mother whenever the investigators wanted to meet and each time Bruce answered every question and retold them again and again what happened the day of the disappearance and in the weeks and months prior to it. The only thing that 
detectives thought they could pull from the details that Bruce gave them was the fact that maybe Rick owed somebody money. If men had come to the trailer looking for money and Bruce thought someone was looking through the trailer after the family had gone missing, this might very well have been the motive. The best way to determine if this was true was to look at the finances of the family. And through financial records and discussions with Rick and Ruth's friends, family, and co-workers, they weren't able to find any evidence that the family were in dire financial trouble. Like, yes, they were barely living paycheck to paycheck, but from what they could see, Rick didn't borrow money from anybody. Yeah, right. Now, see, this is why this is my little one. I kind of went in a circle. This is what I'm trying to get at here. So here we are now. We've come to the to the crossroads. He hasn't he has no shady dealings. Nothing that they could point to can, you know, bear any fruit here. So what let me ask you this. Why would if you did owe someone money, they would not kill you? Unless you had money on you to give them right then and there and then they killed you. Right. Depending on how much money was owed, let's say, if that is true, you would probably, like, you know, like you see in all these gangster movies or whatever, they would beat the crap out of you and say, if you don't have my money by so-and-so date, I'm going to kill you. Right? Right. Money by Monday. Money by Monday. You know? They would do something like that. Right. To take you out makes no sense because you're not getting paid. I get it. Right? And when you and the and, children? And the children too, which is a little weird. But I'm just trying to say if you owed somebody money, they're not going to just let you pay them back cuz they know that you can't. So they want interest. They're going to want, you know, they're going to want things like that to make it more complicated. You seem to know a lot about this, John. I know. Shh, don't tell anybody. Um This is all being recorded. I know. Whoops. Um <laughs> So that's that's the thing. So I don't even think that that this is true, which is why I said sort of red flag bookmark on this kid. Right. He knows something, and I call, I'm calling it now. Like it just doesn't make any sense at all here. It's very interesting. Yeah. So now let's just take a look at these murders with a wider lens. Okay. An entire family is murdered and burned in the Midwest in the early 1990s. So guess who the media thinks did it? Uh. <laughs> I said it in the beginning. A cult? Yes. A satanic cult. You have to <laughs> you have to remember, like, cue the satanic cult theories. And you can't blame them because, like I've said with other cases, it was the perfect storm. When 1991 hit, America was immersed in what had become known as satanic panic. The McMartin preschool trials had just ended. People were sent to prison because of systematic satanic sexual abuse of young kids happened, right? That's what they were accused of doing. Um, Of course, you know, later it was found that maybe that might not have been true. And we are also two years away from the horrific case of the West Memphis Three, where three young boys were senselessly murdered and another three young boys faced what was one of the worst legal injustices this country has ever seen. So I think saying that we were in the midst of the satanic panic in 1991 would be an accurate assumption. And to make matters worse, in the neighboring town of St. Croix Falls, where Bruce actually lived, satanic graffiti appeared all over the building of a Masonic lodge. 
So they're thinking, oh, there's a satanic cult active in Polk County and they're the ones responsible for this. Like the family must have died in a ritualistic murder. And this was fueled by the detail that whoever did this went back to the car and shoveled out the larger remains of the bodies to keep for their satanic purposes. I mean, I know like I know now we can look look on it now and say that that's a little ridiculous. But I know back in 1991, they that's not the case. truly believed yeah. it. Yeah, I know that. There were, it was all over the news. All of law enforcement agencies, they were all, they all had to go to these different trainings of how to deal with satanic cults in the area. Like this was a very clear and dangerous threat to everybody in the early 90s. So they were thinking, oh my God. And the media is going to go nuts with this. The narrative is going to massively shift in this investigation. And everyone's going to be thinking, because of this graffiti that popped up, which might have nothing to do with this case whatsoever, that there was a satanic cult active and they killed the family too. <sighs> I know it's silly looking back. Yeah. You know You know what I would... I know this kind of like infringes on um, our, uh, our amendment rights. But you know what I would... In, in this case, you know what I'd love for them to do to everyone? Every family member and friend should have gun uh, gun residue test on everyone and see what comes up here. Because this whole thing to me right now looks like it's it's been it's been done by somebody, right? I don't know who, but it looks like it's clean it was tried it, they made it look like it was cleaned up. They tried to put it in a, in a place where they wouldn't look that wasn't too far from the house. But I think that being not far from the house wasn't necessarily intentional. Like it, it gone down that way, but I don't I don't know. I just think that all of the people that know this family should be interrogated and tested for gunshot residue. All right. Because I don't think a cult is going to use a gun to shoot people. I don't know. I don't it would, know. It would be a little more ritualistic. Yeah, right? Wouldn't yeah. you think? Like knives and Well, unless weird they things. unless they took out the family, unless they took out the two adults and the ritualistic killing was on the children. Come on, John. It's a possibility, but I think that this is just this is just a way to sidetrack us from the truth. Yeah. I think there's a, a lot of this is being the cops are getting sidetracked by what's plaguing the United States in the 90s. You know what I mean? Or this is just like a real life American version of Allison's birthday. Is that the movie from like Australia? Yes. Is that the one that you and I watched? It's yes, it's one of the best <laughs> movies, like old school horror movies of all time. No, no, it's yes, not. It's amazing. Well, John loved it solely just for the Australian accents. I did. But if you are craving an old school horror movie allison's birthday is phenomenal it's on actually shutter right now shutter should yeah. sponsor us again because we do always say yeah. shutter movies shutter movies well anyway I... and you have to remember allison's birthday was the first to do it all okay that was just my last... Kay just really likes horror movies <laughs> i don't know like i said though this is just very odd you know like it's it, looking at it now from the 2022 lens it's just so weird how the cops really believe that you know in this like like desolate town in the middle of nowhere, a satanic group killed an entire family in the woods and burned the vehicle. Like, I just, I don't know. No, I totally get what you're saying. And listen, 
there might be there might have been in 1991 most of the detectives that were investigating this saying like no we don't believe that's true we don't believe a satanic cult was responsible for these murders however their problem is everyone else does I know, it's like the court of public opinion. Right. It's like, it's so hard. So because the media is going nuts with this narrative, the police do have to investigate it. So the first thing the detectives need to do is conduct interviews with this new objective. Has anyone heard of a cult or a Satanist living within the area? And in doing this, it creates the panic even more, but they have to do it. So it's, it's just a cycle of hell, I guess you could say. Right. So they ask Bruce's friends about this and they learn that Bruce usually bought pot from a man who was known to be a Satanist, or at least he looked like one. So maybe just roll with me here. OK, please don't. Look I know at me you like guys that. can't see me, but my eyes are rolling. I, so maybe it was Bruce who attracted the Satanists or owed them money and in turn his cult. You know, like he owed a satanic cult money because he bought so much pot off of them. Just follow. Just just freaking roll with I'm me. Here, OK. And maybe the family was killed in retribution for what Bruce had done, because after all, Bruce was supposed to have been in the car. And this was really like, like, you know, I can't even get with that theory at all. OK. All right. So, working on this theory that John absolutely hates, detectives wanted to interview Bruce's friends to see if they could find anything else out. Okay? So, two people that he was closest with were his stepbrother, Jesse Anderson. So, this is the son of the man that his mother married, and they live in the house together when Bruce is living with his mother. Well, I would say Jesse Anderson was a few years older than Bruce was. And a girl who he was best friends with, and her name was Katie Hahn. And actually, it just so happens, and welcome back to high school, my friends, that Katie Hahn and Jesse Anderson were dating each other. So as you can imagine, like Bruce was basically like, must have been difficult for him to navigate at times because he was the third wheel. Hey, it happens. It, it does happen. So first, the detectives decide to interview Katie Hahn because she's an outsider from the family and she might be more inclined to speak candidly, whereas Jesse is his stepbrother and best friend. And Katie does have some interesting things to say. She stated that lately things had been very weird. Usually things were great with her, Bruce and Jesse, and that the two boys were usually super close. They're best friends and know everything about each other. But ever since the disappearances and now murders of Bruce's family, the two boys had been arguing. Well, she didn't necessarily say arguing, but she said there had been a lot of tension between the two of them, especially when Bruce would go down to the police station and answer questions. She also said they spoke of the disappearances as if they knew more than what had happened. Okay. Big red flag. Correct. But what got us there? The cult. The cult didn't get us there. <laughs> they would have never me. talked to her, but they would have never talked to her. I guess, but they were interviewing family members anyway. That's true. You know, you know what I mean, and friends. Uh, so the know. cult solved it. No, the cult did not solve it. Okay. 
Okay, the cold did not solve it. You know what's you know what's solving this for me was when he told when this kid told his bogus story about someone coming to the house, and that he wanted to do homework. That's literally what did it for me. I think we're getting somewhere here. And this interview with Katie Hahn has blown the case out of the water. They had been overlooking Bruce the whole time, and it made sense that they would because it was unbelievable for him to be involved. He had been emotional about what happened. He was so cooperative and his story hadn't changed from the very first time his mother called the police to report Rick and the family missing. They thought that they were getting Satanists, but what they found was actually worse. Like they probably would have rather a cult did this because you saying a 15 year old boy did this all. It's pretty hard to imagine. So the investigators are now going to look further into Bruce Berniser and Jesse Anderson. And when they do that, they found out some interesting information. Friends told detectives that Bruce had been removing items from his father's trailer and had been selling them. He also had been using coins. Oh, my God. Listen to this. He'd been using coins from his father's coin collection to play video games at a local arcade. What? Yeah. And some of these coins were worth hundreds of dollars. Well, yeah, because they're silver, probably. Yeah. And he's just putting them in arcade games. Oh, my gosh. When they found this out, they were shocked. So they go to talk to more friends of Bruce. And they want to see if all of this information could be corroborated. And boy, was it ever. Kids were telling them that Bruce had given stereos and TVs away to people. And he was telling people he now owned three cars because of his dad. And this was just days after the family had been reported missing. So how did Bruce know then that the family wouldn't be returning? He already knew they were dead. Yeah. So these friends also said that Jesse knew a lot more about what had happened than he was letting on. The two boys were close and Bruce wouldn't have done anything without Jesse knowing. Basically, when they talked to all the friends, like they kind of got the... Um, the message that Jesse was the dominant of the two boys, so Bruce would not have done this stuff without telling Jesse. Detectives believed that it was time to speak to Jesse. He was the key to all of the information that they needed. But things were complicated because of all the familial relations. Jesse's father, Ron, was married to Bruce's mother. So it was just complicated. But eventually, Jesse's father told detectives that he could come speak with his son, but only if he was present. The detectives agreed and set up a time to go to their house, which was located just outside of St. Croix Falls. Bruce and his mother, Alice, weren't home at the time. Jesse was asked what he knew about the murder of the family, and Jesse basically repeated the same story that Bruce had told. During questioning, Jesse was very defensive at times, and sometimes he was even combative with the detectives who were really thrown off guard because really all they were doing was asking him simple questions. Jesse's father could sense that the detectives were getting suspicious of his son because of his behavior. Like he was kind of giving this away. So he asked if he could talk to his son in private. Of course, the detectives allowed him to do so. Jesse and his father were gone for about 15 minutes before they returned and when they did, the conversation was ended pretty abruptly because Jesse's father said they wouldn't be having any further conversations with them without a lawyer present. 
To detectives, this was a sure sign that Jesse definitely knew more than he was telling them. And his father knew it. Wow. How else could there, this be any clearer, right? That, if you're going to lawyer up that way, right? Yeah, especially like after, you know, the, you're in the middle of a conversation and then you just say that. It's because I think this was the shock. I think Ron Anderson had agreed to have his son talk to police because he didn't think his, he generally didn't think his son was involved. And then as this conversation is going down, he's like, oh, shit, we need a lawyer. Yeah, it's smart on his behalf to look out for his son. Right. But I mean, I, I mean, it's already done because now all they're going to do now is press. Right. Press, 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 press. They're going to get one of these two to confess. Exactly. And police do want to continue this conversation with Jesse, even with his lawyer. So we're going to get into that conversation right after we take a break here to talk about our final sponsor of the show. All right, let's get back to the show. So like I said before our break, investigators were very serious about having a conversation with Jesse. So they scheduled a time for them and a lawyer to come down to the sheriff's station to have a conversation. Now, this conversation was a lot more helpful to investigators. Jesse revealed that on April 21st, the day before the family supposedly left for the supply store in Minnesota, that Bruce told him he was going to shoot his entire family. Jesse said that he didn't believe his stepbrother. He thought he was joking. He always joked about how much he hated his father and going to his house and having to live in the trailer. When they asked Jesse more about that, he revealed that Bruce hated his father and he especially hated his father's girlfriend. And he hated more than anything sleeping in the trailer and having to like live Like what he said to Jesse was he hated living in the gross, filthy trailer and it was embarrassing and they all lived on top of each other and he just found that life there miserable compared to the life at the home that he had with his mother and stepbrother and stepfather because they lived on more like a big farm area. So there's a lot of room. Not a reason to kill five people, buddy. No. If you're miserable, maybe you should talk about it because your parents seem pretty reasonable. Yeah, I, I don't understand. So on April 22nd, Jesse said that he and Bruce attended school and that there was no incident at school that day. So this is the Monday, the Monday that they go missing. But later that afternoon, Jesse got a call from Bruce. I did it, he said. I killed them all. Bruce explained everything he had done. He said that he had been left home alone with Ruth's two daughters. While alone with them, he tied up the two girls and took them outside behind the mobile home. There, he shot them in the head. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he was left alone with the two older of the girls who were 10 and 7, and he shot them in the head after tying them up and taking them out in the back. Jeez. Yes. So then after he did that, he went back into the trailer and sat at his bedroom window waiting for his father, his girlfriend, and their daughter, his half-sister, to return. When they returned, Bruce was there at his open bedroom window with his rifle pointed at them. Rick had seen his son sitting in the window and not thinking anything of it, most likely maybe thinking his son was shooting squirrels or something, Rick asked his son what he was doing with the rifle. 
and without a word, Bruce shot him twice, killing him. Wow. After he shot his father, Ruth went running into the house after her daughter. Bruce found her in the living room with the phone in her hand. She was trying to call 911. Before she could connect, he ripped the phone cord out of the wall and ordered Ruth at gunpoint to go back outside in the front of the trailer. She turned and went to run out the front door of the trailer, and as she was attempting to run away, Bruce shot her in the back of the head. The 15-year-old boy then returned to the trailer, where he found his half-sister, Crystal, who was five years old, standing at the back door of the trailer, staring out at her two sisters, who were tied up and dead outside. Bruce ordered the five-year-old girl to go outside as well, where he shot her in the head, killing her. And can I tell you something very disturbing here? A very bizarre detail of this case? Yeah, go ahead. Bruce used the same weapon, a thirty thirty Marlin lever action rifle, to kill his family. The same rifle as Butch DeFeo in the Amityville murders. Wow. Isn't that interesting? That actually is. And, you know, we keep, you know, because we did release that DeFeo murder episode that we did for Patreon and then we released it as like a regularly scheduled episode and people made some pretty interesting comments about you know their theories as to how one person could kill a whole family and I think in cases like this we realize these cases that have been shrouded in mystery because they happened so long ago and we don't necessarily know all the details it is entirely possible to kill a whole family. Look how a 15-year-old boy just took out a family of five. Right. I mean, listen. It can, can, can happen. Yeah. Can it happen? Yes. The DeFeo thing, there's still other things that are shrouded in mystery there. In my opinion, I think that there's things that we still don't understand or how the events took place. Like how right. they were systematic. Were they systematically killed? Whatever. But here... It's totally possible. Yeah. Just because when someone has a gun in their hand, you control the entire outcome of what's just about what's going to go down. And I think that's really interesting to you because the same thing with the DeFeos, I think it creates fear. So all of those children, like in the DeFeo murders and even in this, you know, like with the DeFeo murders, like uh, a listener brought this up. They were so used to abuse and so terrified at what was happening. And because they're kids, they just stayed in bed because they were terrified. And it has become this mystery because they're like, oh, how didn't they hear? Well, they probably did hear, but they were terrified. And what have they learned throughout the abuse of their lives was to stay in bed and stay out of it. That's a good point, actually. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, this is the same thing here. This 15-year-old boy was able to have the upper hand and he did. First, he killed the two girls, and then he's going to take out the person that's the biggest threat to him, his father, first. Yeah. And then and then because Ruth is so terrified, especially for her children, he kills her. And then to kill his half-sister, this five-year-old girl who must have been so scared in watching her whole family die. How the hell did he do this? It's... It's one of those things where, you you know, we can't even get into the mind of somebody like this because we're not, <laughs> we can't relate, you know? There's no relatable ground there. And sorry if I sound stuffy. I do sound a little stuffy. 
Johnny, it's okay. Sorry, guys. It's fine, honey. But um, yeah, I uh, I don't think there's any rhyme or reason here. I think that he just despised his father. Yeah. And you he know, he was resentful yeah. to the three girls because maybe he felt like his dad treated them differently, or or I think he despised the girlfriend. And then that's why the two girls also felt his wrath. And then at the end, he had to kill his sister. Yeah, he had to take out everybody. I um, I also didn't. He have a fight with or an exchange of words with his father. No, that was just a part. That was of just his, his story. story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So back to Jesse Anderson. After Bruce had told him what he had done to the family, he told him that he needed help to cover up what he had done. Jesse said that he drove to the crime scene to help Bruce because he didn't know what else to do. So as soon as he had seen what Bruce did when he got there, he threw up. But he then still helped Bruce carry all of the bodies from where they had been shot to the station wagon. Using a shovel, they also put all of the blood-soaked sand from around where the victims had been into the back of the station wagon. So basically they shoveled up any evidence and put it in the back of the station wagon because they were planning on setting it on fire. So once everything was in the back of the vehicle, like including fragments of skulls and blood, and Bruce said, let's drive the car somewhere and light it on fire. But Jesse refused to get into the station wagon with the bodies. So Jesse followed Bruce, who drove the station wagon to that remote area three miles away, in another one of Rick's cars, a Hyundai. So Bruce pulled down a logging road and then drove to the wooded location where the car had later been found. Jesse left Rick's Hyundai in the road and he walked into the woods to meet Bruce. Bruce then poured gasoline all over the station wagon and lit it on fire. The rifle he had used was in the Hyundai. And now Jesse was driving and Bruce told him to go to a nearby pond where he disposed of the weapon. The boys then drove back to the trailer when Jesse dropped Bruce off and then he returned home in his own car. And that's what they did. Now, according to Jesse, the two did not speak again until they got to school the next day. And Jesse said that he told Bruce he couldn't sleep because of what they had done. And Bruce told him that he slept like a baby because the trailer was finally quiet. Yeah, I think there's something <laughs> there's something seriously wrong with the way that he's I don't even want to say well he's not coping. He's he doesn't even care that they're dead. He's very callous about oh, it. He's like a weird. sociopath. Wow. So Jesse then said that as the investigation was happening that he and Bruce were talking a lot and every time Bruce talked to the police he was getting nervous because he thought that Bruce was going to maybe try to blame him for the crime so the two boys decided that they need to cover their tracks better and to do this they should drive back to the vehicle and see what was left and get rid of any more evidence so he couldn't remember exactly what day it was but it was around May 8th, 9th, or 10th. And this is when the searches were still going on. So when they got to the site where the 
car had been burned, they saw that many large bone fragments were still in the car. So, using a shovel, they scooped the large remains out of the vehicle and put them in a duffel bag. And Jesse said that he remembered one of the large fragments was a skull of a child, but he didn't know whose skull it was, which is so sad. Um, But this also explains why there were shovel marks within the remains, within the cargo part of the station wagon. They also took the plates off the car. They then went to Jesse's house and buried the plates behind a barn, which was on the property of Jesse's father, where they lived um, outside of St. Croix Falls. And then they buried the duffel bag in a burn pit close to the cornfields by their house. You know, when you <laughs> when you really think about it, right, um, based on, you know, 1991 standards, what they did was pretty, like, they did well covering up their tracks. And you know what's probably really scary about that is that might be because I think Bruce had been planning this for a long time. I think so, too. I do. Because it doesn't seem like he was happy at all. No, and this doesn't seem like a plan a 15-year-old boy would come up with on the fly. I think this is something he had fantasized about, which is disgusting and scary. But the reality of true crime podcasts, I guess. Yeah. So investigators would usually think um, that Jesse was conveniently making his involvement less in the crime. But everything that Jesse said was making sense. And it did match all of the physical evidence they had. Also, Jesse had no motive to hurt the five victims. So they really, truly did believe Jesse Anderson in this situation, which was why I'm sure they were probably reassuring him as he's talking to them and why he was so candid in giving his information. So they got a search warrant to search the Anderson residence and property. Within the residence, a composition notebook was found in Bruce's room. The notebook contained writing from Bruce that stated how unhappy he was with his father and how intense the hatred for him was, so intense that he wanted him dead. And this was enough for probable cause for an arrest of Bruce Bernizer, the one that everyone had rallied around because they felt so bad for was arrested for the five murders. When Bruce was arrested, he showed no emotion and refused to talk for the entire ride to the Polk County Sheriff's Station. This was truly shocking to the community, and I honestly think it would have been better at this point if it was a Satanist. Because how could a 15-year-old boy do this to his whole family? Or at all? Jesse was also arrested for the crimes, However, he was told because of his cooperation and if he would further assist them in finding evidence and would testify against Bruce in court, he would have immunity. So he, of course, made the choice to become a witness for the state. Jesse led police to the location of the license plates, the duffel bag, and the rifle that had been thrown into the pond. The rifle was tied to the investigation by the BB that was carved into the rifle for Bruce Bernizer. The connection was solidified when the rifle, through ballistics, was tied to a mushroomed 30 caliber bullet in the ground 
outside of the trailer. Outside of the trailer, skull material had also been found, as well as areas behind the trailer that had been bleached in an attempt to remove blood. It was there that he shot his five-year-old half-sister in the head, as fragments of her skull had been found on the ground around the areas that were bleached. The large bone fragments of the duffel bag were all later identified as belonging to the Bernizer and Berenson family. That's so sad. It really is. Bruce Bernizer pled guilty to all five counts of murder. However, he and his lawyers were claiming that for three of the murders, the murders of the three girls, he was insane. And for two of the murders, the murders of the adults, he was not. So I find this to be very odd. And I think this is something that happened because the prosecutors, the state, did not want to go to trial. So this is the plea agreement that was reached. But I think that if this were to, if they were trying to make this hold up in court, it wouldn't have worked because there is no way that he can claim insanity for the murder of the three girls and not insanity or say he wasn't, you can't switch in and out of insanity because he kills the two girls then he kills his father and his father's girlfriend. Then he kills his sister. So you can't say you were insane, not insane, insane. Yeah, exactly. And not to mention, there's there's clear planning here. By him taking a tying them up in the back, waiting for them at the window to come in, taking those people out right afterwards. Like that's all planning. He waited right. he waited in there. But I think the reason why that he was allowed to claim this was because it was part of the plea agreement. Because if he is claiming insanity for this, he's going to spend the rest of his life, which he is um, sentenced to at a mental health facility, a criminal mental health facility versus a prison. So... The backup is that if he ever gets out of the criminal mental health facility, he might have the criminal charges against him. Okay, I understand. But guess when he's up for parole? This year. Next year. Next year, okay. Wow. Yeah. So it's very interesting. Um, He did try many appeals. One appeal of Bruce Bernizer that was successful was at one point they tried to move him from the mental health facility that he was in to a prison, which they did. And he was in prison for a while, but it was found that the, um, that they should not have done that. And he was moved back to the mental health facility. Okay. So he's currently at the criminal mental health facility and he's eligible for parole next year after doing all of this. But he was very cold hearted during these murders and after these murders. You know what we're not talking about? I mean, even though it's not the biggest detail, but I think it's definitely something that's interesting. Imagine that your stepson just put your son away because he was a, uh, an obviously a... Uh, Murderer. Like Jesse helped... Helped Bruce. I know what you're saying. It's The relationship between Alice and Ron has to be very complicated. Because the two of you met, now Ron's son helped your son 
after he committed a murder. Right. But then now Ron's son was responsible for putting Alice's son in jail. How complicated is that? Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Luckily, there are no other children involved. But. So it's sad because here you have this situation of this this blended family which seemed to be on the outside going well but you had this inner rage burning in this 15 year old boy who definitely had some psychopathy because he was capable of doing what he did and then he tried to make a community feel sorrow for him yeah and i feel bad for all these all those kids very sad and even the and even in the mother and the father the father tried really hard he was trying really hard to to build a good life for his family. And yeah. he was trying to do yeah. so in an honest way. It wasn't like he was doing anything wrong or just trying to get by. It's really, it's, this is truly a heartbreaking case. Yeah. And I'll, of course, keep everyone updated on what is happening with Bruce, Bruce Berneiser and his parole. So. Good one. Yes. This is a very interesting case of a whole family being murdered which is so sad because i was right to question the 15 year old huh i know as soon as you did it i was like damn it he got it again i you know what but it was, i still I... try to make it like make you guess of course oh, no i love it i mean i listen for all i know i could be wrong i really could be but i i it was just something about his story that just seemed to like it was too perfect it was and it was leading police into another direction Listen. So, I mean, I was right to feel that way about him is is what I'm trying to get at. No, but. you were right to feel that way about him. Another side. It's always like the family cases that are like really hard because it's really like a whole family has been stolen from the world, which is it's just so sad, you know? Yeah. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of episode 124. And we are excited to see you in another few weeks. But again, if you are on Patreon, you've got another two episodes coming for you. All right. Bye, guys. Take care, guys.